Somebody has some extra paper they can get. <laughs> I would like to uh, thank the uh, conference on behalf of my family. It's very kind of you to invite me and to put up my family for the week. And uh, as my sons have said, They've never um, enjoyed uh, a better camp. So. <clears throat> Winning at volleyball didn't hurt. <laughs> Some uh, verses from Colossians 3, first of all. Is Colossians 3, beginning with verse 9. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old man and its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And then from the Confession, chapter 25, paragraph 2. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. The title of this lecture is The Church Catholic, and uh, for your information, in order to help you understand the development of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church with respect to its ecumenicity, I call your attention to an article by John P. Galbraith entitled The Ecumenical Vision of the OPC. That is found in the volume Pressing Toward the Mark, uh, pages 411 through 426. And also Jack Peterson's article on the Committee on Ecumenicity and Interchurch Relations, found in the Semicentennial volume, the OPC 1936 to 1986, pages 49 through 59. And that will give you a feel for the OP's involvement in the ecumenical world. Just some definitions. I don't know that I have to spend some time on this except for Ed Hardesty's sake. But <clears throat> the word Catholic means universal. <laughs> Ecumenical means worldwide. So that has in view a worldwide range of the people of God. I've uh, put the acronyms on the board for you there. And uh, the 
listing to your left is the listing of of the national organizations uh, of various stripes. The ACC, the American Council of Christian Churches, a fundamentalist organization uh, started by uh, Carl McIntyre and others. Across the line, then, you'll find the international counterpart to that. The ICCC, which is the International Council of Christian Churches, again, it's the fundamentalist uh, answer to the, uh, or counterpart to the uh, the American expression. Next, I don't think you need any introduction to the NCC, the National Council of Churches. That's uh, the liberal uh, side of things. Uh, that's the national body. And then across the board there, the WCC, the World Council of Churches, which is the worldwide expression of that. Uh, beside that is the, uh, the World Alliance of Reformed Churches, and that could go down a little bit below, but it's a uh, that's basically a worldwide organization of reformed uh, uh, denominations. Then you have NAPARC, uh, which we are a part of, the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council, and <clears throat> it's made up of six denominations. Um, and across the board, and I put them in prints because not everyone in the NAPARC groups is a part of uh, the organizations that appear uh, across the board. The REC, or what was formerly the RES, the Reformed Ecumenical Council, uh, we have left that body, I'll say a little bit about that later, and the ICRC, uh, the International Conference of Reformed Churches, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, is it conference? I, I think so. I think it's the International Conference of Reformed Churches. And the OPC has just recently joined that body. It's uh, comprised of uh, about 10 to 12 uh, reformed bodies worldwide. Okay. Then you have the NAE, which is the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, that's a broad-based uh, evangelical organization. It does not purport to be a council of churches. It's uh, a composite of individuals and interested congregations and denominations and institutions. And across the board, you have the uh, World Evangelical Fellowship. Uh, it's the worldwide expression of the evangelical movement. So those, uh, those are the various options that you have ecumenically in the world presently, uh, from our point of view. From this general scene, let's uh, look a little bit more specifically now at the OP and her place in it. We have been speaking about the OPC as a Presbyterian anomaly. By that, we have tried to press a case for the uh, worldwide uh, context in which the OPC has endeavored to operate. We have suggested that this is the thesis that was laid between the lines in our original objective. That objective, you recall, was to review important events in OP history for the purpose of demonstrating that the OPC is a legitimate expression of Christ's church with distinctive contributions to make to the church's self-understanding and mission. So while we have been pointing out all along the OP's uniqueness, we have been moving in the direction of building our case 
for our church's unity with Christ's church at large. Any assessment of this unity is, is scrutinized by the Scriptures, which we hold as our primary standard, as that word stresses that we must bear in common uh, those uh, characteristics, features of Christ's church as Christ uh, portrays his church for us in the word of God. So, while we have been stressing OP uniqueness, we also want to keep in view the direction that we have been moving, and that is we are building our case for our church's unity with the church of Jesus Christ at large, keeping in view at all times the Bible, the Word of God, as that Word lays before us the common features of Christ's church, and those common features must characterize us. But even at this point, as we move in this direction, we cannot leave behind the OP's distinctiveness, and I think that that's going to be very, very clear to us as we move through this section. That distinctiveness will provide our church no occasion for boasting wickedly in her gifts and graces. Rather, it must be the occasion for service. It must be the occasion for service, the occasion for self-sacrifice, for even an emptying of ourself, ourselves Christ-like for the sake of others. At this point, it would be well to remind ourselves of the heart of the gospel we embrace. At the center of Matthew's gospel is Christ's statement in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And he says those word, words by way of instruction to his disciples concerning the kind of lives they're to have, the kind of uh, uh, deportment they are to exhibit. This matches well, then, with what we find in that sublime passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And many of you know that passage by heart, which speaks about having the mind of Christ in you. Christ being equal with God, emptying himself, taking upon himself the form of the servant, that for the sake of others, and God then highly exalting him. Those who think they are first must be last. If you believe that you have a distinctive feature, if you think that sets you apart, then all the more you are compelled to be the servant so that that distinctiveness may be of service to others. I want to return then to the diagram that I drew for you on our first day. I know a lot of you got lost. A lot of you got mad. 
lot of you thought I was a dispensationalist, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, I put the diagram. It's not mine. It's Gehertz's bosses. So you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. You know, some of you have your suspicions. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the diagram, and and once you understand it, it's a beautiful thing. It's uh. It's called the overlapping of the ages and that the Christian and the church presently live in a tension situation that we can't avoid. Now, we live in a tension situation we can't avoid. We are, we are on the plane of this world, in the plane of this world. Uh, we live in the present evil age, but by virtue of the death and resurrection of Christ, we, have, we by faith, united to Him, have come to share the reality of those things which belong to the age to come. So there's a tension for us between flesh, which characterizes the present evil age, and the spirit, which characterizes the age to come. Christ dwells here already in the age to come, and we by faith, who are united to him now, also have come to dwell there with him. It's as if we're already in glory with Him. That's why we're able to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. We are beyond the judgment. Okay? Is that clear? All right? So, here you are in the middle. I've got my man. Can you figure out my man in that? I put something else in there now too, but there's my little man. That's the Christian. He has his head in the clouds and his feet on the ground. <laughs> Your mind is being renewed, transformed. That is, you're beginning to have your thoughts transformed so that they think heavenly. Alright? At the same time, you're still in the earth. Alright? Now, <clears throat> I've superimposed a little building over our man. That's really what that is. And I put a cross on the top so you know it's a church. Okay, so it's, it's the church. The church corporately is in the same position. Now, I've drawn this little circle here because I want you to understand what's going on. You, by faith, have been united to Christ in the heavenly places so as to put you up here. All right? You're in glory. You have privilege. You have status. You're a son. <laughs> okay, you, you cry out, Abba, Father. You have all of these advantages. Position of, of privilege. All right. <clears throat> but who do you see in glory? Who is this one that you behold by faith? He is the one who bears in his body the marks of his humiliation. You see him. And seeing him, you cannot insist on your privilege and your isolation and this place up here, but instead, in imitation of Him, you must then choose the course that He chose, and that is the course of condescension, the course of humili humiliation, so that you are placed then again on the plane of the earth to serve. That's Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. That's the mind of Christ. You give yourself over now to service in imitation of your Savior. 
Okay. It's a little clearer now <laughs> for some of you that were a little confused. Commitment then to this biblical position means that while we are that anomaly, that Presbyterian anomaly, we cannot be sectarian in the sense that we bear no responsibility for other believers beyond our borders. We cannot be isolationists in that we cut ourselves off from church and world in self-righteousness. We simply cannot do it. We are, to be sure, separatists. But that, in the best Protestant tradition of that term. All Protestants are separatists. <laughs> now, why are we being singled out? <laughs> why is it suddenly that the word separatism is a bad word? Jesus separated from the establishment in Israel. Jesus was a separatist. The reformers were separatists. And now the mainline Protestant churches having gone bad, we are separatists in the best sense of that word, but we are not sectarian and we are not isolationists. But now, what ministry in and for the Church Catholic do we as Orthodox Presbyterians have? This is where I get weird. <laughs> so hang on, will you please? <laughs> now in order to grasp this, we need to keep in mind some truths about the world itself. The world, for all the talk about the global village and how we're overcoming all of our differences, etc., etc., has been and is gripped by radical forms, old and new, of nationalism, ethnicity, racism, and nationalism. <clears throat> the world, for all of its talk about the global village, has been is gripped by radical forms, old and new, of rationalism, of, of nationalism, of racism, of ethnicity, and these are often reinforced by ironclad barriers of ideology. The church in this situation is faced with a number of problems. One is the fact that it can allow itself to be defined by a regional, national establishment. It can allow itself to be defined by any one of these categories that we 
just mentioned so as to secure for itself a position that is respectable, that is safe. And in some societies, a position that is immune to harassment and persecution. In fact, it can become so implicated in these structures so as to become party to iniquitous persecution itself in the interests of its privileged status. This it does by subordinating major concerns of doctrine. Major concerns like the truth of Scripture to political and sociological realities. But wishing to maintain the appearance of a Christian identity, more often than not, it remakes the gospel and Christian doctrine after its own image. Remakes the gospel and Christian doctrine after its own image and according to national, political, ethnic, and sociological concerns. Here, parenthetically, is the danger the church faces in the church growth movement and in the contextualization program. Church growth, the church growth movement, has insisted upon working with what it calls indigenous, homogenous people groups, people that naturally fall together as units. I think you can see how this kind of philosophy plays right into the hands of the forces that we have been describing. I heard one minister quip, in the United States we call it church growth. In South Africa they call it apartheid. I remember speaking to a minister from Southern California who had just experienced a visit from a church growth practitioner. This man had come to speak in his church. At the end of the service, a black woman who was there rose to her feet and ran to the door. The pastor raced after her to grab her to find out what was wrong. She turned around in a fury and said, All of my life I have been working to break down barriers between whites and blacks, and this man comes here and merely reinforces those distinctions. That's church growth. <clears throat> what about the contextualization program? The contextualization program by and large insists that all of the elements that I mentioned above must have their say for a group of Christians living, worshiping, and confessing their faith 
in their various contexts. We hear it said <clears throat> that there must be a contextualized theology for Latin America. There must be a contextualized theology for Asia. After all, we know that the Westminster Confession of Faith was the product of white Northern European semi-aristocrats. What I can't figure out is why these contextualists are always finding fault with my white suburban middle-class attitudes. <laughs> I'm simply being true to my context, aren't I? <laughs> In the face of all of this, the church must remember her heavenly calling, her heavenly origin, her heavenly citizenship, and her heavenly destination. We are citizens of heaven, Paul tells us. As one writer said, we are a colony of heaven on earth. And the OPC being cut loose, from an indigenous American identity is wonderfully outfitted to make this point and make it powerfully. Let's uh, <clears throat> move on to the dynamics of OP ecumenicity. And here I have three points for you. First of all, and uh, I expect it hardly needs to be said, the OPC is called to be true to the scriptures and to her doctrine, which is summarized in the confession. This could go without saying if it weren't for the OP's devotion to a certain track of thinking when it comes to the Bible's teaching on ecumenicity. That track is the so-called ecumenical imperative. The OP has been committed to the ecumenical imperative throughout her history. Here, the OP believes that scripture lays upon Christ's church an obligation not only to cooperate with other bodies, but to seek union organizationally with them. For the OPC specifically, this means the cooperation with and the pursuit of other reformed bodies of believers. That is an obligation that we feel. Now, in light of this obligation, I want to point out one of the oddities of JNR. Do we know what JNR is? The joining receiving operation that was conjured up at the end of the 70s for effecting uh, a union between the PCA, the OPC, and the RPCES. 
the RPCES and the OPC were to dissolve, in effect, and uh, join the PCA in mass. Now, one of the oddities of JNR was this. The OPC was being asked to unite on the basis of the ecumenical imperative with a church that didn't believe in it. To unite with the PCA would have meant that we would have had to give up our conviction with regard to the ecumenical imperative. Now isn't that a strange irony? All right, <clears throat> the dynamics of our perspective on ecumenicity. First of all, that we be true to the scriptures, and that means in our estimation that we are committed to the ecumenical imperative. We are bound to seek union with others of like faith, organizationally. Secondly, the OPC must be true to herself, and she says this again and again in her ecumenical documents. She must be true to herself and pursue an ecumenicity that carries her beyond the barriers of simple nationalistic, ethnic, cultural, and ideological barriers. Now as to the importance of this principle, This principle is very important to recognize because of the intolerable position the OPC was placed with JNR. You see, she was asked to dissolve and be absorbed into a body that was particularly and self-confessed nationalistic. One that had no ecumenical program beyond the United States of America, and one that had compromised herself ecumenically through involvement with the National Association of Evangelicals. Or at least that was the direction of the body at the time. In other words, the OPC was being asked to choose between two forms of ecumenicity. One, quite provincial and compromised, the other, Catholic and reformed. She was forced to choose between them since she could not have them both. To go into the PCA meant that we would lose our identity as an international body, as a Catholic body. So it wasn't a matter of those who favored ecumenicity versus those who were not in favor of ecumenicity. It was one form of ecumenicity versus another form. That was the choice, since you couldn't have both. 
and many were compelled to vote against JNR because they were committed to the worldwide vision of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Thirdly, and here's where the rubber meets the road, really. The OPC carries with her her identity as a Presbyterian anomaly for the sake of others, not vainly, not proudly, but in the posture of a servant. She carries with her her identity as the Presbyterian anomaly, that which doesn't fit, transcending the national and cultural boundaries for the sake of others, and particularly in our time, for the sake of those who are being pressured to surrender before the threats of nationalism, ethnicity, and ideology. Do you know what's going on in the churches in the third world? Do you realize the pressures that are being exerted, brought to bear upon these small, struggling, reformed churches in various parts of the world? Do you realize what's happening? Identify with the culture, identify yourself with the national agenda, or perish. That's the choice. Here's the situation for the Reformed Church in Indonesia. We'll give you a choice. Join the World Council of Churches or be declared an outlaw. That was the ultimatum that came down from the government. What is that church to do? Where is she to look? She desperately needs those in the world who can, for her sake, say, look, there are others who have stood over against who haven't capitulated, who are not defined in terms of their national or ethnic identity. They have resisted. They have stood their ground for the sake of the gospel. And God has preserved them, and he will preserve you too. But take your stand. Don't go into that body. Has all the suffering been worth it? Has all the opprobrium heaped up upon you been worth it? All the hostility the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has experienced over the years been worth it? In this day, if we as servants will make ourselves available to others in the world, the answer is yes. What immeasurable help comes to these? What a voice of consolation, comfort, and encouragement. Well, 
as to the particulars of our ecumenical enterprise. By and large, I leave those to Mr. Galbraith and Mr. Peterson to spell out for you, and I encourage you to read their articles. But I will just make a few statements here in closing. <clears throat> the OP, in her early days, flirted with the ACC and the ICC. I've got to give you enough C's in there. <laughs> ACCC and the ICCC, the fundamental expression of ecumenicity. It didn't throw in its lot with those organizations, but it did have dialogue with them. It interacted with them over a number of years. The OPC joined the RES, the Reformed Ecumenical Synod, a worldwide body of about 40 denominations comprised of about 5 million Christians in 1949. But she left that organization in 1988, and I think that some of you are aware of the circumstances under which he left. There was a church, the Reformed Church in the Netherlands, that simply will not abide by the Word of God, uh, has compromised itself on various matters, doctrinal, social, and moral, and uh, in the estimation of, uh, of the OPC, should no longer be a member of the Reformed Ecumenical Council, and when the Council was not willing to deal with the matter, the OPC said, well, I'm sorry, uh, we have to go. The OPC, as I said, has joined the uh, International Council of Reformed Churches, the ICRC, that at this last assembly, again, in an effort to express her, her international and her Catholic identity. She's determined to do that. In this country, she has had close associations with a number of congregations, a number of denominations, rather, the Christian Reformed Church, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod before it merged with the PCA, and the PCA, of course. She has been involved in two efforts at Union. There was one in 1975. We voted to join with the RPCES. The RPCES voted us down. Keep that in mind, will you please? In 1981, we voted to unite with the PCA. The PCA voted us down. Now, having learned a few things, in 1986, we voted them down. <laughs> well, there have been three votes. The 1975 vote with the RPCES, the 1981 vote with the PCA, and then the 1986 vote with the PCA. <clears throat> Rejection uh, has been hard to take uh, for many. But many, maybe in these failed efforts we can see more and more what is at stake. God in his providence 
overruled our vote. We voted to dissolve. God overruled. We're still here. Now we can sit around wringing our hands and feeling sorry for ourselves and wearing hair shirts, but that's a monumental waste of time, isn't it? <laughs> Our identity, therefore, providentially has been preserved. There is still a place for this Presbyterian anomaly. We have not been removed from the scene. We still have work to do. Let's get about it. And particularly in the ecumenical realm. Let's get about it. We have a unique contribution to make to the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. That by the grace of our God. Let's pray. Hear us, Lord. Root out of us any vanity, empty pride. May we be servants after Christ. And that for the sake of others. We plead with you, our God, that we would apply ourselves now and that to the glory of your name. Amen.